1: Welcome listeners to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you, Walker? Good. And today I'd like to say I hope everyone had a great holiday. Happy holidays to everyone. I'd like to welcome any new listeners we have in this new year. Welcome, everyone. We'll get right to it, as we usually do. We talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about some news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Onk, Gods of Egypt, by Eric Lang. So, Walker, what'd you play last week? Mark, it was the holidays, so you get together with family, and I was told we were going to play a game. You see, <laughs> we, we all got these $50 gift baskets, and we and we wrapped them up, and we're going to play this game in order to distribute them. Oh, say. no. Yes. So this game consisted of hitting a button on the phone, which said that you are either going to pass the gift right or pass the gift left or steal someone else's gift. So hit the button and do what it says.
2: So this is Yankee Swap slash White Elephant meets LCR meets Hit the Buzzer Win a Cookie?
1: Yeah. And, and to top it all off, like this wouldn't be so bad if it was when you stole a gift, you could see what it was you had no idea what was in the gift bags. They were totally covered. So on top of everything, the gift was hidden. Oh my goodness. Now, if this wasn't all terrible enough, Mark, at the end of the game, I looked to my right and I see the gentleman who was kept trying to steal the same gift, trying to get it. I had the gift he wanted. So I said, hey, why don't we trade? No problem. He was happy with that. And then the the, the nice lady that organized this whole thing said, oh, I'm going to trade with you then and grabbed my gift and gave me hers. So this, it was a great game. Highly recommend zero to 10 unplayable.
2: (laughs) Some people just want to overcomplicate things. I, I would make a joke here about a board game designer that would, that would produce the results you're talking about, but there are very few game designers. I think that would ever dream of combining that level of convolution with that level of arbitrariness.
1: There are some. But That's what I mean. That's the argument that we make. Oh, Mike, it's just a family tradition. They're just there to have fun. But no, Mark. No. <laughs> it was not fun. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it out the other end of that, Walker.
2: What did you get to, what did you get to play, Mark? Uh, the only story I have with respect to family gaming over Christmas, which is what we celebrate in my family, is I was asked, well, you know, maybe while we're together over Christmas, uh, you know, maybe there might be some sort of game you bring along. And I said, no, <laughs> I am. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, well, no, the, She she's familiar with like trick taking games and, and plays cribbage. It's like, yeah. People who play cribbage like to play cribbage. Cribbage is a thing unto itself. It is, I'm not denigrating it as an activity, but it is absolutely an activity as far removed from what we do as calisthenics. It's, I mean, yes, it involves some of the same materials in very much in the same way that I might walk to go get more chocolate from the kitchen. But again, the difference between my getting chocolate from the kitchen and calisthenics is the difference between, anyway, you get the idea. Uh, And even with my full game collection, I wouldn't be able to manage that. But with what I have with me, certainly no. So somebody suggested that I try to introduce gaming into into Christmas, and I put a hard kibosh on that. So I managed to escape from, from that experience. Some people have great success introducing games into their family traditions. I am not one of these people. And as I've commented in the past, if anything, I err more towards refusing to try to engage in gaming as opposed to shoving gaming on people. But I read the room, I evaluated the crowd, and I made the command decision that this was not the proper environment.
1: I may have been wrong, and different environments will be different, but that's how it shook down. Yeah, for sure. I do the same thing. I just let them know I had like a regicide in my pocket and said, Hey, you know, if you know people want to play something, I've got it. Never force it. You know, If people are interested, they'll ask me again, and I just leave it at that. Absolutely. I have Regicide with me
2: wherever I go, and in point of fact, somebody who's played Regicide before said, oh, well, you could try Regicide, and I'm like, look, you don't understand. I said to this person who actually plays a fair number of hobby games, people who play a fair number of hobby games have a radically different conception of how complicated games are. And just the notion of a cooperative card game where you're success- uh, trying to compete against bosses with cards that trigger special abilities and so forth that's uh, that's that's a that's a certain leap of complexity that a number of people are not necessarily eager to engage in in their hobby time, and a lot of people don't want hobby time during a Christmas celebration anyway, so that was my reading of the room again, if you have great success introducing games to your family, more power to you, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, I just felt that it was an inappropriate suggestion on my part. So suffice to say, in the games I played last week, I did not play any convoluted gift games, nor did I play any other hobby games with my extended
1: family. So with my actual family, I got to play Coyote. They always love the games I pull out. It's either going to be uh, Skull or Cockroach Poker, but this time I decided to introduce them to Coyote. Even my mother loved it. Lots of fun, lots of laughs, lots of devious bids. <laughs> great
2: thing about Coyote is that people who are not inclined to play can still have a great deal of fun watching everyone else
1: suffer. Exactly. It's like definitely one of those games where if people just walking by, you can just sort of explain to them what happens, and they sort of look around, and they you know they they see you know they add it up, and then then instantly they want in on the next round because it is super fun.
2: And just to contradict to almost everything that I just said, if I had had access to coyote or something, I might have brought that if anybody were inclined. Right? If again the the two question standard that you Walker articulated, if somebody asks twice then you know that there's genuine interest. And something on those lines I absolutely might have been willing to say if I'd had skull, uh, maybe even cockroach poker given the crowd. But Coyote at least has some degree of traction. People are familiar with the poker variant in particular where you have the card on your forehead or the party game where you're a, per- a certain historical personage and you, you ask questions, etc., etc. And so if I'd had access to something like that, I might have reconsidered. Yeah, Coyote's good. I miss Coyote primarily as an observer. I very much enjoy this as a spectator sport we should try to get a less racist edition too so i played more assault on Doomrock ultimate edition and i'm having a great time with the additional content this time i decided to play without any of the variant modules so i've tried the variant dice module i've tried the variant solo module but this time i played with just new stuff so i anytime a card came up for um, an antagonist or a trait or a class that I'd already played in the published materials that are already out for Assault on Doomrock 2nd edition, I binned it and kept drawing until I got new stuff. And so I got to play the cavalrymen against the horde of little critters. So imagine a bloodthirsty mob of tiny bunnies and little kitties and so forth that are here to chew your face off. And I very much appreciated some of the new design chops that are in particularly that combo that matchup because one of the powers, one of the abilities that the cavalryman has is you can sock away a die of the proper value and then the cavalryman never is never considered surrounded. Uh, This is the male version of the class, by the way. Every class comes in two versions. And this is particularly relevant because one of the key strategies that the Hordes of Critters uses is to surround people. And the goal of the Hordes of Critters encounter is not to kill all of them because they spawn way too quickly for that to be reasonably plausible, but rather merely to survive. If you survive to the end of round three against the Hordes of Critters, you win and they succeed by swarming you and at the end of the round you take damage based on the number of critters that are around you and so rather than killing things to try to whittle down their number of activations it suddenly becomes very consequential about who you kill and when you want to save your attacks until the end let them come to you in as managed a way as possible but of course there are some trade-offs involved in that because as they charge you they do more damage but you don't want to leave one connected with you already because they start to pile up anyway there's a number of, of, of surprisingly subtle timing and targeting considerations that this particular boss encounter implies. And the cavalryman really relies on the ability to do damage and then leave. That was uh, very, very useful in that encounter. I still lost because, uh, number one, I'm not a smart man, and number two, because Assault on Doomrock is brutally difficult, and I enjoyed it tremendously, nonetheless, as I always do, because, as as I've said before, I've only ever run... One, Doomrock once without cheating. And so I really like some of the new material in Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition. I I hope that the rest of the new encounters and the new skills and the new classes continue to show this really exploring the design space that Assault on Doomrock's brilliant combat system really allows for and really seeks to further exploit the interesting little corner decisions and interactions that are made possible in this system. Now, this is a pre-production version. This is a prototype. It's going to go up on crowdfunding next year through beautiful disaster games. But if you've ever played Assault on Doomrock before, the core fundamentals are still there. The lovely abstract combat system, the interesting dice manipulation, and how it interacts with your skill cards, and the Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition, which based on the Polish 4th edition, is something I'm very, very much looking forward to. A number of design improvements and so forth, and a ton of optional modules, but again, as I commented previously, I'm not entirely certain that the optional modules are going to be worth their additional rules and component grit. The rules grit is somewhat minimal, I found that very manageable, but the component creep might be real, and that's one of the reasons why I retreated back to the base version, such as it is, of Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition. There are some rules changes and some additional component creep already out of the box. But I wanted to make sure I wasn't overwhelming myself and I can really start to appreciate some of the new stuff and letting it breathe by itself. And I'm glad I did. I had a great time with Assault on Doom Rock Ultimate Edition. I'm going to be continuing to explore it. And I'm looking very much forward to seeing what changes are done leading up to the crowdfunding campaign next year and any other design changes that are occurred. I also would like to note on the topic of Christmas gatherings... And this is also under the uh, interest of full disclosure. The copy that was sent to us by Tom Stasiak, the designer and publisher of Assault on Doom Rock, came with a bag of Polish candies, which I uh, thoroughly devoured, except for the whiskey truffles. The whiskey truffles taste like whiskey. I do not like alcohol, and I did not find them pleasant. Several members of my extended family, though, oh yeah, they were huge fans. Big, big fans of the Polish whiskey truffles, and I got to sound terribly sophisticated. Oh, those. Those are Polish, you see. Anyhow. (laughs) I just want to make sure that if you bribe us with chocolate, we will disclose it on the podcast. So everybody wins, really.
1: Exactly. I want to go back to what you said because it reminded me of a story. When you said it was like the woodland, the woodland creature enemy, reminds me of my very first convention that I ever went to, where these these gentlemen were having a homegrown set of rules that were like D anD D, Warhammer sort of, uh, you know, tabletop skirmish where we had, you know, invisible crossbowmen and, you know, all sorts of different like funky units like that. So where my main caster was a beholder and this druid on the other side had sent this whole horde of woodland creatures at me. And I'm sure that the lava spell that I had been given was supposed to be cast at range, but I told him that I want to do it right <laughs> underneath me. And because I was floating, was immune, and I could just see the picture in my head of all these little bunnies and chipmunks and (laughs) woodland creatures floundering in the lava as they tried to attack me. It was quite wonderful.
2: Let me tell you something, Walker. Two things. Number one, this podcast has never and will never be endorsed by PETA. And number two, a squirrel would murder you if it had half a chance. So I fully endorse this path that you've taken. So... That is Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition by Tom Stasiak at Beautiful Disaster Games. This is a pre-production copy from the designer and it will be crowdfunded sometime next year.
1: I got to play Furnace. This is designed by Ivan Lashin and put out by Hobby World. It's a game, it's a very fast sort of engine building, cube pusher, has this fantastic bidding system where you print out these tokens and you can't have two on the same card and you can't have two numbers on the same card. So this very interesting sort of compensation if you don't win the card but when you take the card it goes into your little engine i really feel playing the advanced way is the best way to go the difference is the normal game when you take it you can rearrange your engine however you want But the advanced version, you have to put it on the left or the right. And what this does is it just eliminates all the, you know, the AP or the slowdown because people aren't, you know, fiddling with their cards or they're not forgetting say, oh no, I forgot to do this particular card. They simply have to put it on the left or the right, and then they have to run it from left to right. So they have no options. The turns went very quickly. It's only a four turn game. You can knock it out in 45 minutes.
2: This was mentioned actually on the Discord. I imagine playing a game of Furnace with people who are prone to analysis paralysis would be a bit torturous. Because it is, as you say, a very, very stripped down, simplified, accessible, engaging cube pusher. But if someone starts agonizing over the way in which and whether and how they're going to convert their little cubes into little bars or whatever, it could easily stretch into double its suggested length. And I
1: would not want to experience that. Nope. That's why I think the advanced version is the only way. And that is Furnace.
2: I thought that in the advanced version, you could insert a card in the middle of your
1: production chain, but you can only put it at the ends. I'd have to reread it. That's the way we played it. How about we'll say it's the Mike Walker advanced version.
2: In the advanced variant, you can actually put cards somewhere in the middle of your production chain. You don't have to stick one of the two ends.
1: Interesting. Well, you've got your own variant now. That's fine. So you can insert it, but you can't change it once you've done that.
2: All right. You cannot change the order, but when you acquire a new card, it can go in any sequence of your production chain. My way's better. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes, this is the cla- this is the natural terminus of many a rules mistake. You say, it's, oh, that is the, the way that the rules. No, 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 my way's better. <laughs> I got to try That Time You Killed Me. That Time You Killed Me is a new abstract game by Peter C. Hayward published by Pandasaurus Games. And it puts forth a lot of effort to theme the game. That time you killed me is nominally about two players, one of whom invented time travel and another whom is going to use time travel to murder the original inventor of time travel, and thereby claim that they actually originally invented time travel. The rule book is very funny, with lots of asides about how the, how the future's like, about how you're a terrible murderer, about how you may or may not be a brilliant inventor, or a despicable person, or both. Lots of little messages from the purported inventor of time travel and stuff like that. It's all very funny, the world is communicated very well, and I almost buy the theme when playing the game. Almost. Not quite, but almost. And that's that's not nothing. I want to give credit where credit is due. I think they get eight to nine-tenths of the way there. But the problem is, is that some of their thematic explanations for why the game works the way that it does make more or less sense case-depending. So, for example, when you go back to the past, it generates a new copy of you one era forward. So there's the past, present, and future. If you travel from the present to the past, A new version of you shows up in the past, and what you do is you populate a new version of yourself in the present, because, of course, that's you aged. That's that copy of you aged a little bit. But that doesn't carry through to the future, so it only carries forward one era forward. But other things, when they happen in the past, ripple forward all the way to the future. But traveling back in the past doesn't. Other things, as you manipulate them, that manipulation is echoed all through all three boards, And other things not. So, in other words, a number of thematic explanations kind of only work when they, they, they fudge it a little bit. And the gears start to show, and it starts to feel like what it is, which is to say, a positional abstract. So... Suffice to say, That Time You Killed Me belongs much more in the tradition of, say, the Gip project than it does to any sort of thematic explanation or any kind of theme-driven or much less narrative-driven game. And that's okay. I would much rather it, a positional abstract try to give you some sense of flavor than not bother at all, precisely because I'm not particularly sold on positional abstracts as a genre. And I think That Time You Killed Me is a classic example of a game that is not for me. It's interesting, and it gets a lot of things right, and one of the things that I very much appreciate is that it simultaneously expands the decision space while narrowing the range for analysis paralysis, because after every turn you take, you have to declare what era you're going to do actions in next. So I do something in the present, I meddle about in the present and do some things, and then I have to declare, next turn am I going to be mucking about in the past or in the future? You can't stay in the same era two turns in a row. Now, that forces me to consider what I'm going to be doing planning ahead, so that expands the, the at least the strategic horizons of the game past purely tactical, but at the same time it means when my turn starts, I'm not staring at an entire board looking at a universe of possibilities, I have certainty of focus. That also communicates to your opponent what you're going to do, and they can start setting up combos knowing that they're not going to be able to defend themselves in the eras that you're not declaring yourself to be in for the next turn. That part, I thought, was great. The rest of it, though, was very positional abstract. There was the possibility for some degree of stalemate, I spend my two actions doing a thing, you spend your two actions completely undoing it, and then we're back to square one. This happened more than once in our games. Now, again, this is probably because I am not a skilled player of such games, but ultimately it felt somewhat unsatisfying. I mean, when you initially start the game, very much like a lot of positional abstracts, you're staring at this incredibly symmetrical board, and you figure, how on earth am I supposed to do anything? And things only emerge very slowly and so that really didn't satisfy me as somebody who's not, who's only a tourist in the world of Positional Abstracts. I still prefer some of the elements of various games of the Gift Project. My favorite is probably Devon. I didn't feel that way when playing Devon. I very much felt like I had sort of benchmarked small, medium, and long-term goals, and I didn't feel quite as adrift, and I didn't feel like there was this possibility of either Zugzwang or Stalemate as there was in that time You Killed Me. Now... There are lots of modules in That Time You Killed Me. There are basically four different ways to play the game. And I've played the first module a couple of times. The first module introduces a very thematically clever bit where you plant a seed in the past, a shrub shows up in the present, and a tree... Shows up in the future, and they all move in different ways. And you can shove your opponent into a shrub, and we're told that the shrub is very spiky, and so they die. You can topple a tree over onto your opponent, and they die because you know a tree has fallen on your head. And that part is all for the good, but it as you get to future modules, and I'm not going to spoil anything because you're supposed to play them in sequence. As you get to future modules, though, the weird corner interactions start to multiply. Like, what happens if you shove an A into B at the edge of the board? It's like, well, okay, at that point, B moves to the side and A moves backwards or something. Even in the first module, I still had to look up the rules of the game several times to say, okay, what happens when these two pieces interact in the way they do? Because this piece can be in the same space as another kind of piece except when it's initially placed and if you shove this into the edge of the board what happens while there's no room for it to move so anyway that time you killed me has some of the issues that a lot of positional abstracts do a set of core rules and then they start to introduce more stuff and some of the corner interactions are not immediately transparent which is a minor niggle but nonetheless stood in the way of my appreciating it more i can definitely understand why a number of people Take to that time you killed me a great deal because if you like positional abstracts, the the added personality is definitely something to be appreciated in in the game. And I think that Pandasaurus and Peter Hayward need to be applauded for that effort. As I say, I think they get most of the way there, but not quite enough of the way there to have me appreciate it on its own terms. So if you're in the mood or in the market for a two-player positional abstract, I can recommend that time you killed me easily. It's certainly worth looking at. But as it is, not to my taste, I don't think I'll be going back to it after trying it a couple of times. It's very much of its genre and doesn't manage to transcend it, which I guess is not exactly the biggest criticism one could offer. And that is That Time You Killed Me by Peter C. Hayward at Pandasaurus Games.
1: I got to play Adventures of Robin Hood. This one, the Spiel family game of the year. This is designed by Michael Menzel and put out by Cosmos. And I just want to make sure I preface this with Uh, this is definitely a family game Hmm. and is for it is to be it should really be played with children. If you buy it for your gaming group or something, I think I don't think you'll find enough there. But we did we did manage to pull some stuff out of it. So what you're doing is it's like advent calendars are still popular for a reason. So this is this (laughs) giant board and and it's and it's and it's already pre populated. It has all these windows that you're gonna be opening up. Depending on what adventure you're doing.
2: Question: Do any of the windows have chocolate behind them?
1: No. Zero out of ten. I'm sorry. So what you're doing is you're moving Little John and Robin Hood and all and Maid Marian. You're moving them around the board, and you have to keep them in the shade of the trees. Mark, you're you have these three different ponds, and they have different size trails behind them. So you're making these little uh, like conga lines of movement meeples, and you have to sort of skirt the mountains and skirt the forest, but stay in the shade or else you're going to be caught by the guards it comes with this very like it's an actual like book it looks like a book they did a fantastic job on that it has it like a choose your own adventure feel to it you can sometimes you can do a or b or you know depending on what character is active it has a different part of the story i think they did a fantastic job it has everything like it deserves everything that it's gotten so far that's for sure like super tactile like lining up the The meeples is super fun. It does have a little bit of like micro macro sort of study the board and, and learn things beforehand. Like I won't spoil anything, but let's say it said, you know, find the hamster and, and feed it right? So you definitely see the hamster. So you can go over and talk to the hamster and it'll say something like, oh, it was looking at some food over, you know, in the corner. Or you could have already seen the food, like search the map and said, oh look, there's some nuts over here. Let's go to that first. And sure enough, if you pick up the nuts first and then go to the hamster, you save yourself so much time as opposed to, you know, going to the hamster, then back to the nuts and then back to the hamster to feed it. That kind of thing. And sort of like looking at the enemies and saying, oh, we need a sword. It's like, okay, that guy has an axe. That guy has a sword. And if you actually attack the guy that has the sword, you get the sword. So the kind of interesting things like that. That sounds adorable. Yeah. And then it comes with this giant bag that you're using. You're pulling stuff out. and You're pulling all sorts of different things out of the bag. Uh, There are cubes. There are discs. There are uh, tokens. All sorts of different things in the bag. But they're so different size. So it says so you're to figure out turn order it's discs and you have no problem figuring out what is what so everyone has their own colored disc and then there's some discs that uh will let everyone move and then a gray one that you can choose who you want to move and then the red one that's bad that will you know populate the bag with bad things and make bad things happen on the board and this is where we pulled Uh, the actual game out because you can see what discs are left and you can sort of say, okay, well, we'll give this person the action because there's no way a bad one will happen. And then we have a chance for us to go again before we repopulate the bag and go again, that kind of thing. And then battles work, you're pulling cubes out and you get to pull three cubes out. And as long as you get one good cube, you win. So you can sort of track how many good ones versus bad ones are in there. And you can say, well, we'll attack a couple of guards to, to get out because there's no penalty for losing a fight and you draw one cube at a time and they don't go back in the bag. So even if you pull three bad cubes out, then at least there's three less bad cubes in the bag. So it's, it's interesting, very basic, interesting manipulation like that. But overall looking forward to playing some more with the same, we were just, we said, Oh, we'll just play with the same group of three. Whenever it's just the three of us, we'll pull this out and play a couple more scenarios Looking forward to doing it again. Had a lot of fun playing Adventures of Robin Hood.
2: Played Final Girl. Final Girl is a solo game by Evan Derrick and AJ Perfurio at Van Ryder Games. This is an evolution of a previous solitaire game called Hostage Negotiator, which I have not played, but I read the rules, and the design lineage is very, very transparent. The fundamental gameplay loop of both Final Girl and Hostage Negotiator is the same. You have these action cards, which you play, And they have a variety of possible results based on a die roll. Now, I know what you're thinking, Walker. This is cards married to dice, which is normally a bugbear of yours. But the card play is purely deterministic. The cards that you have in your hand are actually cycled and recycled on the basis of how many action points you have left at the end of your turn. So you buy a card for a certain number of action points. You use it later. And not all actions take action points. I'm calling them action points. It's represented as time over the course of a given turn. But mostly, you'll be limited by the number of cards you have, not really by time, but you're constantly buying replacement cards for the ones that you play. They cycle in and out of play. So it's not really a, a deck builder or a hand builder in the traditional sense, because they're all one shots effectively. But you can't use the same card two turns in a row. So if you play a card, you can't buy it back immediately. And that's how the zero cost cards get regulated. And that part, I thought, was interesting and kind of neat. You have to worry about when you're going to be using your search actions, for example, because you can't... Searching is not something you can do immediately when the game starts. You have to buy the search cards. And so there's a finite amount of ability to do that, especially since you can't use them more than one round in a row. And the theming of Final Girl is the I think one of the primary draws it's about slasher movies the final girl trope is a sort of somewhat controversial trope regarding the idea that a monster or killer in the vein of Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers or what have you will eliminate a whole bunch of Randy teens until there's a final girl left and she will confront and defeat the great evil that is that is a trope of slasher movies going back decades And some people have tried to reclaim the Final Girl trope, some people uh, want to critically interrogate it in the vein of film criticism. I don't know to what extent this game succeeds in subverting it or doing interesting things with it, so suffice to say it's married to an interesting, albeit somewhat controversial, uh, gendered movie trope. I don't really have an opinion on the Final Girl trope one way or the other, although I find it very interesting to read the thoughts of those that do. In Final Girl, you play as the eponymous Final Girl, and you try to kill the monster that's chasing you. Now, the problem is, as far as the end game goes, I didn't very much appreciate that the end game always reduces to you just going and murdering the great monster. You know, the the thing chasing you, whatever monster or slasher it has, it's going to have some number of hit points, usually around ten. You have a much smaller number of hit points, so typically, what you have to do is go and find a a pretty good weapon because your attack cards are garbage, as well they should be. And then you just spend a lot of time wailing on the monster, especially if most of the other victims that are around, hanging around your location, are either dead already and/or saved. And so the thematic cohesion of that part made me somewhat skeptical of how it's going on. Like I don't know, maybe maybe your impression of a of a slasher movie is that that's exactly how it works. But to my mind there's not some sort of protracted end game where the final protagonist of the slasher movie is actively attacking the monster repeatedly over and over and over again. Then again, as I say, I'm not a huge aficionado of the genre. I actually felt that it was somewhat similar to Vengeance in that it is a game that is trying to actively replicate a very specific genre of film experience, and in that sense I think Vengeance is a much superior adaptation, if for no other reason than, number one, I think it's more evocative of the source material, and number two... I actually felt the way that they leverage the tempo of the game is more successful for some of the uh, concerns that I articulated before. And besides, I like the theming of Vengeance more than I like the theming of Final Girl anyway. I do have a note about something interesting that Final Girl does, though, and it's about the way that the game is being distributed. The way that it works is you buy the core game, and the core game is unplayable by itself... And you buy these theme boxes, each of which introduces, number one, two additional characters that you can play as, but they can be played regard with any setting. They also introduce a new slasher and a new setting. So at a minimum, you need two boxes. And if you buy just two boxes, you'll always be playing one of the same two characters against the same slasher in the same location. But you can mix and match. If you've got two boxes, you can play either of the two locations with either of the two slashers, et cetera, et cetera. There's also this bizarre and, and kind of intriguing but not 100% useful or utilitarian approach to packaging involving magnetic boards. I would try to explain it, but it's very difficult to describe in words. I would encourage you just to go see pictures of the way that it works. The game boards are themselves the boxes, but not in the traditional way of, say, Siege of Rundar, or, you know, you take the box lid and you put it underneath the board itself to try to give some semblance of 3D. It's that they literally magnetically clasp around the game material and you remove the magnetic board and that's the board itself to either track the villain or the location itself. So, as I say, I've tried a couple of different settings and a couple of different slashers and a couple of different uh, final girls and uh, the variety doesn't I'm not really feeling it to a, a huge extent like the, the the same sort of dynamics work out I mean the, the torrent of bad things that are going to happen to you are still roughly the same the slash is gonna come and kill things and you're gonna try to save some civilians and then go try to find a weapon and then confront them uh, maybe that's just the selection of villains that I've taken maybe there's some more interesting ones uh, but ultimately I thought that As an experience, it was fine. It was, it was enjoyable enough. It was very quick. You know, 40 to 50 minutes, maybe, win or lose. And the difficulty, I would have appreciated it being a little bit higher. But honestly, the level of variance is super, super high. If for no other reason than are you going to find a good weapon easily or not. In both games, I found a good weapon very easily. And as a result, the final confrontation was borderline trivial. So I think I'd probably appreciate it with a different setup. But again, there's no control for that. If in the deck of item cards, it takes forever to find a good weapon. Well, then probably you're doomed. And so I'm not really sure that that's the the level of determinism I want either.
1: So it's like deck milling?
2: (laughs) Yes, Walker, it's your old friend deck milling. Well, in the sense of the final confrontation alone. There are other things you need to do. Mostly it's about either, as I say, saving civilians or attacking the final boss who just wanders around, usually very slowly, killing things. So as I say, I thought it was fine. It was, it was it was a nice diversion. If the setup were quicker, I'd probably pick it up more frequently. So if you compare it just to another solo game, for example, One Deck Dungeon, the setup for One Deck Dungeon is borderline trivial. You shuffle a deck, you arrange a few counters, you're off to the races. Final Girl, as I say, you need to pull apart these magnetic boards. You need to shuffle together a number of different decks of cards. You need to sort a few more sets of cards and then set out tokens and then set things out. You can get an optional miniatures pack, which I do not recommend. It didn't add much to my experience at all, other than just cost and component creep. You, you, there's only two figures on the board they are going to be represented by miniatures anyway, so I would have preferred that they all be little meeples. So that would have worked out. A lot of people are really taking to Final Girl, and if you're super enthusiastic about slasher movies, I could definitely recommend it more. But as it is, I thought it was a perfectly serviceable solitaire game. It didn't really grab me, but it was hard to be too offend- offended when it's that quick. And the fundamental card play, the card cycling, I did enjoy, but ultimately it was at the whims of how good your dice are. You know, you can carefully plot out having the perfect hand, but if these dice, which are highly variant, Generally speaking, you're going to be rolling one or two, and you're looking for successes on five or six. Eh, there's a lot of room for weird results as a function of that. So add that to the deck milling and trying to find a good weapon. I never really felt like I had a whole lot of control over what was going on. So that's Final Girl. If With a quicker setup, I'd be willing to give it a few more goes, but as it is, I don't think that the time to value investment is really there. Designed by Evan Derrick and AJ Porfirio.
1: Published by Van Ryder Games. That's Final Girl. I got to play Radlands. This is designed by Daniel Pichnik and published by Roxley. And what this is, a two player sort of back and forth type game. It doesn't really bring too much new to the table, but it definitely gave me, gave me like that mind bug feeling because you're both drawing off the same deck. Uh, it's quick, easy setup. The rounds, the whole game is very quick. You have three bases. You're putting out, uh, uh, troops or people in front of in front of them to block them. Uh, you have to work your way back to them, wound them, and then initially destroy them. Some, as soon as someone's lost all three of their bases, then the game is over. So it's easily start up again. And it's got very tight sort of re, uh, resources, right? Because uh, you're dealt this hand of six bases for you to choose three. And the deck of bases is huge, like 37, 40 different bases in the deck and they all have crazy powers, and depending on how powerful uh, the base is, it's going to tell you how many cards you're going to get at the start of the game. So it can be anywhere from one to six to a bunch. But anyway, that is one of the resources as well. It's very hard to get a card draw. You're only going to get one card a turn. You can spend two of the three water you're going to get every turn to draw one card. So you can see how rough the water system is because cards... Cost, you know, one to three water to play. Plus all the cards you already have out cost water to activate, to attack your opponent. So it's very tight system. Played two games today. Can't wait to play more. Really enjoyed it because that's all it is, is you pick your bases, draw the cards that you get, and then you're off to the races doing, you know, outlandish abilities, crazy attacks, just very mind buggish feeling. You know, it's like, oh, this guy has this crazy character out. I just need to figure out how to you know, counteract that and then sort of get through the next round. So that's Radlands. Definitely will hear me talking about it more because I'm going to play it a lot more. Question.
2: So you've compared it a couple of times to Mindbug and you're not really big on Mindbug. What about Radlands makes you like it so much more?
1: Well, just because it has a little bit more grit to it. You know, Mindbug's very random and and much quicker and there's the cards are much more swingy in Mindbug. That's for sure. And like I said, this doesn't bring too much... There's a lot of games that are out there like this. You know, put out your bases, defend your bases. But I don't think none of them are streamlined as much as this is.
2: I see. So it's kind of the sweet spot for your preference between the complexity of your more complicated dueling games. Uh, I mean, my preferred would probably be Sakura Arms, but, you know, because there's a fair amount of grit in Sakura Arms. You need to know about how the keywords interact, and there's some subtle interactions. Uh, And then there's the incredibly stripped-down simplicity of something like Mindbug, and you think Radlands, for you, is somewhere comfortably in the middle.
1: Worded very nicely, Mark. Exactly how I would
2: put it. I see. Well, I'm interested in trying it. I, I mean, my favorite game of that genre right now is probably Imperium of Contention, if for no other reason than it supports multiplayer and still works beautifully uh, 2 player. I, I, I still feel I've said it before that Imperium of Contention feels like a card battling game in the same mold. But I'd be very interested to try this Radlands of which you speak. Got to play Crash Octopus. This is actually from two weeks ago, but I neglected to record it properly, and we had plenty of games to talk about anyway from that period. But this is not for lack of enthusiasm on my part. I thoroughly enjoyed Crash Octopus. Crash Octopus is a dexterity game from Naotaka, Shimamoto, and Iten. This is the same team, by the way, that put out Tokyo Highway. The absolutely visually stunning and adorable and endearing... Um, I was about to say game, but that's not really the term I'd use for Tokyo Highway. I don't mean to get into sort of reductive arguments about what is a game, but Tokyo Highway was a beautiful experience, but I felt that the actual game elements, particularly competitive elements, were not particularly well calibrated. Crash Octopus, although I've only played it the ones I hope, will have more of a competitive legitimacy to it, or a little bit more rigor in terms of the rules experience, because... It captures what I really like about a lot of miniatures games in the dexterity format. I've had the same experience with respect to the flick-em-up games, for example. You get a lot of the tactile and visual appeal of a tabletop miniatures game in that there's a shifting geography that encourages certain tactical considerations. And this was manifest several times in our game of Crash Octopus. You've got this pink dome, which just beautifully represents the cresting of an octopus's head above the surface of the water that's moving around and the tentacles are moving around and players are repositioning themselves with respect to the tentacles and the octopus head to either protect themselves or threaten enemies you have to worry about all the time collecting treasure which is the actual victory condition but you can't flick the thing that's closest to your boat so as a consequence where your boat is is v- you can get into some shockingly clever placement considerations like ah I'm here protected by a tentacle and I'm really close to this piece that I don't need, but I'm also slightly more distant from this other piece that I do need and so I'm setting myself up lovely for for future plays. I was very impressed by the level of tactical nuance in a game of Crash Octopus. Now, it's not, of course, the deepest game in the world. It's still just a cute dexterity game, but nonetheless had some opportunities for clever positioning and I, I, I really liked that. It also had a new form of flicking. You don't flick with your finger, but you flick with this masked with a flag which is just a sticker but it's surprisingly stiff so basically you're flicking with this sticker to move things around the board it definitely rewards the kind of flicking that michael walker is opposed to which is to say a subtle gentle flick because you have to flick things onto your ship but anytime you hit your ship there's the possibility of knocking things off your boat and a lot of that happened i have to attribute that to a certain degree of overzealousness on our part if you like to wail on things as hard as humanly possible crash octopus is probably apt to uh leave you in uh, unless of course you do so aggressively you could just take that piece of treasure and send it sailing into your opponent as hard as you want if you're inclined to you're probably not gonna win that way but if you want to work out your aggressions and do the hulk smash move then by all means i'm not going to stand in the way of of your preferred version of enjoyment the world is your oyster or that your giant octopus as the case may be i think shakespeare had a play in which he said the world is your giant octopus i can't remember probably one of the henry's so crash octopus visually delightful I had a great time. I want to play it some more. I have uh, some doubts as per usual about the victory conditions. It seems like a game with very, very coarse scoring. So we had a two-way tie at three and then a two-way tie at two. And so the tiebreaker becomes very, very important. We mentioned this last week when talking about going off script. This is the kind of game where everyone has to keep the tiebreakers in mind, I think, in order for it to be a slightly more transparent experience. Delightful game, tiny package, big visual appeal. Scratched a little bit of the tabletop miniatures game itch. I was a big fan of Crash Octopus. Now Takashimamoto and Iten.
1: And finally for me, a couple weeks ago I talked about Seven Wonders Architect. And I played it a bit more this week. And I just want to make sure that any of my comments a few weeks ago weren't misinterpreted as anything positive, <laughs> And make sure no one makes any moves to, this is a terrible game. <laughs> with with uh, zero decision space and painful gameplay. <laughs> I really need to show. I really, I really need to show this to you, Mark. It's, it's quite, a, quite a thing. Why? Why do you? Why do you want? I didn't know you were such a sadist. <laughs> I just want. I want you. To- To affirm my opinions on this game. (laughs) So Seven Wonders, you're taking your wonder and your deck of cards and you're putting your deck of cards to your right and everyone does this and therefore forms a circle of cards. And when it's your turn, you're either choosing the face-up card on your left or the face-up card on your right or taking a blind pick from the middle. And the cards either have just straight up resources or straight up victory points. And that is what you're doing. There's a few little game elements when you get a technology with these green discs, but it's really not that much. The game will end before you get more than two of them and quite painful to think about. (laughs) I'm sorry you had to relive that trauma, Walker. I'm very sorry about that. No, like I said, I, I I was worried that I might have said something positive about it two weeks ago, so I just wanted to re come back and make sure that uh, no one tries to play it. I don't
2: think so. I don't think anyone would misconstrue your experiences
1: with Seven Wonders Architect.
2: And those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter.
1: So, Mark, it was a Kickstarter Christmas. I got all sorts of things in on Christmas Eve and the day just before It was For Science, Radlands, Steam Watchers, all of the stuff showing up, so it was a very game-filled Christmas. You got For Science and you didn't tell me? Oh, I wanted it to be a surprise, Mark.
2: <laughs> Why would it be a surprise for me? I already had my copy.
1: <laughs> well, that being said, that's that's sort of a surprise for everyone, because I think we're going to give it away as a prize in an upcoming episode. Ooh! There's no sense for us to have two copies of Four Science. But then we would have twice the science. So keep an eye out for that. <laughs> I'm very glad you had such a successful Kickstarter delivery series. I feel kind of bad, Mark, last week that we didn't talk about that. This is the Board Game Geek funding drive. So if you use Board Game Geek, please check out the fact that they're looking for funds at this time of year. And if you can do that, then do that. That is a great resource for us. Moving on. All right, Mark, it's supposed to be a surprise, but I'm going to say it anyway because I do what I want. Board Game Barrage is another board gaming podcast. And guess what? They're doing a top 50 I know what you're going to say. They're always doing a top 50. So I'm not sure what this top 50 is. I think it is their top 50 of all time. And I'm going to be on the show. They're doing this peanut gallery thing. So they do 10 at a time. And then they have, uh, they have content creators on every number sort of, you know, chime in and, and talk about what they've picked. And I will be on there next week. So check it out if you wish.
2: Similarly, in a few episodes, we're going to have our 200th episode, and in commemoration of our 200th episode, we're going to do our top 200 of all time, which will then take us straight into our 400th episode, where we will then begin our top 400 of all time. Sweet.
1: (laughs) Man, I don't even have to come up with topics or or games or anything. So, Roz getting a new edition from 25th Century Games, and... And Ian O'Toole, like you said just recently, how you, how much you enjoy his art, he's going to do the art for your new upcoming game that you enjoy so much. Isn't that great? What I specifically said was, I am now
2: anti-Ian O'Toole's art because I don't think it's very functional, and I don't think it's very attractive in terms of the iconography and in terms of the board layout. But I said, I still like his game covers. And I'm not asserting that he in any way listens to the podcast, but as though to prove me wrong, he then puts out the new cover for Raw, so as to make me eat my words, I really don't like the new cover. <laughs> we'll see how the game itself turns out, and Raw deserves to be in print forever and
1: always, but I have serious misgivings. And then lastly for me, Mark, we talked, I don't know, about four or five months ago, it was Curse City. This came out by Games Workshop. It was this new thing. They were saying it was going to be this big thing, and they said, that's, that's it. We're not even going to support it anymore. This is a one-time thing. And then they said, no, we had our fingers crossed. Actually... We're going to bring it out again this year, and we're going to have expansions and all this stuff for it. Trust us this time. Oh, my goodness. Back in the
2: good old days, Games Workshop would just always say the same thing, that they were going to be supporting all their game lines and then just abruptly cancel them. That at least was consistent. I don't know how to deal with this new series of gaslighting from Games Workshop. Anyway, finally from us, this is our last episode of 2021, of course, and I, for one, speaking personally, cannot wait to see 2021 go out the door, as it were, metaphorically. We don't know when we're going to be coming back, because I'm going to be traveling for quite some time in January. We will be back sometime soon in 2022, and we are going to be pre-recording some bonus Patreon content, so you will not be left out high and dry in the interim, but we will see you when we see you, and we will, of course, have our grand best of 2021 spectacular, during which we briefly descend into the gutter to
1: talk about top 10 lists. And that is the news, and why it doesn't matter. And now, on to our feature game, which is Ankh, Gods of Egypt.
2: Ankh, Gods of Egypt is by Eric M. Lang, published by Kulmini or Not, after a successful Kickstarter... This year, it is nominally the third in kind of sort of mythological trilogy, starting with Blood Rage and then Rising Sun and now Ankh, Gods of Egypt. Eric Lang is a prolific Canadian designer. Uh, Some of his games include, at least in terms of the games that we very much enjoy, Cthulhu Death May Die, which he co-published with Rob Daviau the surprisingly engaging Bloodborne board game. We are huge fans of Blood Rage here on the podcast. Rising Sun proved to be a little bit more divisive. Walker's a fan, I am not. Uh, but there he's been in the industry for a long, long time, and much of his work is actually focused around LCGs which we do not play a whole lot of in this podcast, such as the Call of Cthulhu card game, the Game of Thrones card game, a Warhammer card game, a Star Wars card game, another Warhammer card game, you name it. He was also involved in the Collectible Dice Masters series, but he's also probably well-known for one of his earliest designs in 2008, which is Chaos in the Old World. Now, I mention this because Chaos in the Old World is very much of a piece with the so-called mythological trilogy of which Ankh is a part, in that they are what could best be described as weird troops on a map games. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in
1: Ankh, Gods of Egypt? Well, in Ankh, Gods of Egypt, you need to learn the phrase, no, you can't do that. Those things are not adjacent. (laughs) This... Is a 100% non-heads-down game. You're keeping track of everything in this game because everything matters. It's how close is the next event? What is the next event? Who is going to trigger the next event? Are there any guardians left? Which ones are out there? What are their powers? How many followers do people have? Where is their god? What is their power? Where are people's troops and where, how can I get into these different territories? Who has the monument majority in these different territories and what battle cards have all the opponents played? You're constantly keeping track of all these things. All of these things matter. You need to be watching what's going on with not just what you have, but with what all the other players have and what they're doing.
2: I think, and this is, this to me is the best way to sum it up. Ankh, Gods of Egypt, is kind of the apotheosis of a lot of design threads that Eric Lang has been pulling on and developing on for well over a decade, stretching all the way back to Chaos in the Old World. There's faction asymmetry, there are purchasable special powers, there is simultaneous selection card-based combat, all layered on top of a a Troops on a Map system where combat is bloody and the consequences can be totally removing yourself from a region. However, For the first time, I think, all of these forces, in games, some of which I thoroughly enjoy, results in an experience that is, dare I say, almost Knizia-like in its deterministic feel. Even in some of his other games where there were deterministic elements, where the combat was deterministic after the cards were selected, or where the pacing led to a certain amount of determinism, I'll talk more about pacing and cards later. But when I play Ankh, Gods of Egypt, I really feel like I'm getting the best of wild and potentially unbalanced looking special powers and a more deterministic player-controlled pacing experience where I finally feel like everything that happens is a direct and foreseeable consequence of what people have done. And when something bad happens to me, I feel like it's entirely my fault. And when I succeed, I feel like it's because I've set things up properly. And that Leads to a play experience, which for me is unlike any other that I've experienced this year and from anything else that I've ever experienced from Eric Lang.
1: All right, so let's just talk about how the game looks right off the beginning, because much like all of his other games, it comes with a ton of plastic. So they have all of these different gods and each god has its own troop, own sculpt of troop that comes with it. There are five gods that come in the base game, but you can get up to 12. And then there's all these different guardians, which are based off, uh, Egyptian mythological creatures. You get six different sets in the base game. And with the expansions, there's 25 different kinds of guardian units you can get. And they all look fantastic as, you know, Simon usually does. I'd correct you a bit there. I think this
2: is this is Simon really upping their game in terms of sculpt and build quality because you don't see floppy swords. You don't see bent spears. The detail is all crisp. The gods are massive and have tons of subtle little cosmetic details. I really think this is some of their best work.
1: What, did I, something I said was negative? I, I was...
2: No, no, no. You were you, What what you said was that this is very much as expected of Simon's oh, gotcha. output. I think this I is see. reaching them a new bellwether.
1: I see what you're saying. All right. True enough. And then the board itself looks fantastic. And it leads to what I was talking about before. The uh, The board is split into three regions to start. And depending on what scenario you're doing, you can divide it up a little bit more with some camels. And the, the game is very much based on based off adjacency. What is adjacent to what? Because only one, one piece of thing can be in a space. So it makes it nice and easy that way.
2: The board is a great example of when the game knows to indulge in bling and when the game knows to pull back and be minimalistic. The board, although very attractive, ...is very functional and minimalistic. There's only two different types of terrain... ...and some water that stretches across the various elements of the board. And that's it. There's no complicated terrain types. There's no weird connection issues about whether this terrain is next to another. All of that is covered by gameplay interactions... ...not by little graphical flourishes. And you talked about the variety of Guardians and Gods. I think this is also a good example of a Kickstarter project... ...where the exclusives are really optional... Because most of the additional plastic that the Kickstarter gave in terms of exclusives is either, number one, entirely cosmetic in terms of the monuments, the game ships with cardboard monuments, there are plastic sculpts in the Kickstarter exclusives version, or gameplay elements that are really ancillary, namely more guardian variety. Getting guardians in the context of the game is super important, but honestly, the gameplay variety, the difference in terms of game experiences and game states, is going to be driven far, far, far more by the player choices of purchased powers than they are by the effects of having one guardian as opposed to another. And so this is one of those few cases where I can absolutely say, if you missed out on the Kickstarter and you're the kind of person who has a completionist, urge i would encourage you to abandon that completionist urge and give the retail version of anka a try because you're really not missing out on much
1: yeah i want to hit back on that minimalistic thing you said because everything evolves out of what you do in the game nothing comes sort of pre-loaded like every figure has a power of one every figure moves three spaces everything is nice and base like that and then depending on what you do and how you change your powers those key elements will not change, but you'll have these overarching powers and other things that will happen. And that makes, it's one of the things that makes this game really good.
2: Yeah, and and it's situated as compared to some of Eric Lang's other work, because again, uh, in terms of weird troops on a map games, I think Eric Lang is, is probably one of the most, if not the most, influential designers. I really felt like fewer things came out of left field when playing Ankh. It felt like a more deterministic affair in a way that very much pleased me. If you compare it to Blood Rage... In Blood Rage, there's a card set involved, and I don't care how many times you've played, sometimes a card comes out of nowhere because you didn't know who had it, or you didn't know it was in the mix, or you might have just forgotten that it exists. Oh yeah, Odin's Throne. That's how that card works. Oh, okay, well that's happening now. This isn't frustrating or unsatisfying, but it's, again, it... it kind of falls into the sort of wild nonsense or out-of-left-field experience, which I'm very much a fan of, but don't necessarily always want. Rising Sun, similarly, m- was a little bit more deterministic, but it had these weird unfortunate ripple effects that were sometimes unintentional. An ally does something, and unintentionally, that completely hoses you out of an action you wanted to do. An opponent messes you over entirely by accident, or you just don't even pull the action off the random deck that you wanted to execute and thus your plans fall to non- and so I really do think that Ankh has found the sweet spot between lots of interesting and wild power effects happening, but not having the side effect or consequence of people feel like they couldn't have seen it coming.
1: No, they, they see it coming because everything is laid out at the beginning of the game. All of the guardians that will come out during the game are laid out. Every Everyone's god has a different power, but they have it right at the beginning. It doesn't change. It doesn't get upgraded. And then everyone's Ankh powers are the same. So you have this board where one of the actions you can take is to increase your ankh powers, and then this is also how you get the guardians. So it's like uh, three columns that have four powers each, and so everyone is going to have a different experience unless you know they all pick the same power. Which I've never seen. And they all do different things. There seems to be one that is a little uh, obvious to take or a little overpowered. This is thing called bountiful. This is so when you get more, when you get victory points, you get more victory points because that's how you win this game. It's a race to who can get 31 points first. There is, there is of course a turn limit, but I don't think in any of the games that I've played, it's actually hit the turn limit. Someone's always hit the 31 points and then the game ends. And with this power, uh, the first 19 points are what they call red points. So every time you get a red point, you'll get, Extra red point.
2: Well, that's an interesting case because I've seen people do very, very well without taking bountiful. In fact, the very last game that we played, the victor did not have bountiful and didn't take it. It all depends on the timing, because that's another huge area that I wanna I wanna touch on later, and that is the pacing of Ankh. You want to take Bountiful if you play Ankh the way I play Ankh, which is the way I play all games, which is I want my points fast and dirty. I want early gains, and I want to build up an early lead and hope that coasts me to the mid and late game because I tend to peer out later on. It's because I have a lack of endurance. I attribute it to my lack of vision and my frail physical constitution. And if you're playing that way, Bountiful is absolutely something you want to take. But if the game lasts a little bit longer and or if you plan on making your push later, Bountiful is a waste of time because you're much, much better off taking something else. I would say it's very situational. I will say this, though, with respect to the purchasing of Ankh powers. I see different people. ...getting very good mileage out of purchasing different sets of Ankh powers... ...but every time I play, I always gravitate towards the same ones... I don't know to what extent this is a me problem or a game problem. You still get the variety. Different people take different things and become very successful with it. But every time I sit there, even if I try to do the Michael Walker thing and say, I'm going to try something radically different, I stare at the powers, I look at the board, and I figure, I think this is the one I want. And I take the same ones over and over and over again. I don't find it boring, but I do find it odd.
1: So I'm going to talk about the action system, Mark, because I can't think of another game that does it quite like this. There are four actions you can take. When it's your turn, you're going to be taking two actions of four four different ones. And it has this sort of, I don't even know how to explain it, this track. So when you take an action, the token moves along the track. And when it gets to the end of the track, you're going to trigger an event. And then the actions are very simple. You're moving figures or you're summoning a figure or you're gaining followers, which is another type of currency, or you're unlocking the Ankh powers with which we just talked.
2: I love explaining the game of Ankh because whenever I can explain how your turn works and it's so incredibly simple, I feel like it's a great way for players to get into the game. When People don't tend to ask over and over, how does this action work? How does this other action work? All four of the available actions are so incredibly simple and straightforward, but they nonetheless offer up this tremendous space of trade-off because... You, you said you get to do two actions. That's kind of true. That's kind of not true. You only get to do two actions if, A, your second action is lower on the list of actions because they're just arranged in a top-down order, and, B, you did not trigger an event with your first action. And so knowing this not only influences what actions you're going to take, but influences how you want to set up the actions of people downstream from you in turn order. It's delicious. It's lovely. I love it.
1: It's so good. So this sort of ties into, because you might think, well, are these the only things you get to do in the game? No, he somehow tied more actions into the combat system. So there there are different events. There are conflict events, monument... Sorry, there are conflict events. There are the camel caravan. There are controlling monuments. So within the conflict are these uh, combat cards. And that sort of introduces even more actions you get to do during combat. And I think that he did a fantastic job there. Where you're building monuments, you're receiving these followers, you're getting victory points, you're killing figures, and the fact that your gods never die introduces this really interesting dynamic of where you place your god and which territory they move into. Love all of that.
2: Eric Lang loves conflict games in which sometimes you don't want to win and or what victory looks like can be radically different. And Ankh, I really feel, dials this up to 11. You can go into a battle knowing that you want to lose. You can go into a battle knowing that you just want the battle to happen. You can run away from a battle that you're winning because you don't want the battle to happen on those terms. You can just show up because you want to build a pyramid and then gleefully accept that you're going to lose. And you're not even going to win anything from that pyramid now, but you need to activate it later. There are all these different ways and different approaches to how a fight is going to happen. It almost does it a disservice to just think of it as conflict because, as you're exactly right, so many of the fundamental actions of the game a lot of the core drivers of how the game works are buried in this conflict resolution system and i say buried because again some this is one of my criticisms about how to teach the game and about how new players offload on road into the game it's not terribly complicated or terribly surprising and it doesn't lead to the sort of wild unexpected events but some people have a little bit of difficult time internalizing how flexible and how multifaceted the conflict events turn out to be it's it's delightful to experience but sometimes it's initially daunting
1: i think if people have played blood rage before they can understand that you know completely losing a battle is sometimes just as advantage advantageous as winning Sure, but, I mean, the analogy, I think, with Blood Rage would be it's as if
2: when playing Blood Rage, a conflict event could lead you to playing out a new power card or summoning a whole bunch of figures elsewhere or or, or 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 as opposed to Blood Rage where, and again, this isn't a criticism of Blood Rage, sometimes you want to lose because you've got a power that gives you points for losing or sometimes you have a conflict card that's a one-shot that says you win something special for doing this thing. As opposed to, again, in Ankh, some of the fundamental core elements of the game are implicated in this card play,
1: which is utterly delightful. And not only what you get to do during combat is interesting, the order in which you do it, because uh, one of the ways to score is when this conflict resolution happens, It you only get one point for winning the battle, but you also assess the monuments in that territory. And whoever has the most of a certain monument will get points for that as well. But this is determined Before the complete battle resolution. So you start the battle. You play your cards. And then you determine. uh, Who has the most monuments. So those cards that destroy troops. Become very powerful. But sometimes they don't give you what you want. But if you wipe out someone's. All of their troops. Then they don't get to score those monuments. So there's just so so much decision to make. As you're playing cards. And it's got that typical. uh, Kemet style. Where you have to once you play the cards out there forever until you play the I pick up all my cards card which leads into one of I'm just going to talk about it now which leads sort of into this the camel caravan event because what it does is allows you to lay out more of these camels which divide up the map and a lot of times people will think that that is not a very powerful action or a useless action. It is very situational too. So sometimes it, it can be something that you do not want. But once you understand that uh, when you're adding more territories, it is giving you more opportunity to play cards. So more opportunity to. Uh, throw a figure into a territory that you don't care about in order just to play the, I get all my cards back. So when it comes around to a, a territory that you do care about, you now have all your cards or, or constantly dividing up into a bunch of territories. So you're cycling every other territory, you're cycling your cards back and building a monument, every other conflict. All of these things are, are, are very interesting and Love it.
2: Also fascinating and easy to underestimate. And one of the last sort of big strategic aha moments that I had while exploring Ankh, not that I'm in any way done exploring the, the possibilities of Ankh and the uh, strategic horizons therein, when you make a new region with the camel event you get to reorder existing regions. And the as you said, Ankh is a race game whoever cracks the victory, uh, victory point marker first, you don't finish the rest of the conflict event and whoever has the most Points wins more than once. The victor has been the victor exclusively because they crossed the finish line first because all their valuable territories were earlier on in the conflict ordering resolution. And some other schmuck who was gonna probably score more points overall was looking at that seven region, that eight region that never got to score, and they get to go home a loser because of that consequence. It's absolutely delightful. It's another subtlety that again is not super accessible to new players but is an interesting lever to pull and becomes at least reasonably transparent after a couple of plays.
1: So another event that can take place is monument control. So you simply take a monument that is on the board. And if it's a neutral one, you have to do, you have to convert all the neutral ones first. And if you have a figure beside it, it is now your monument. But once you have, once all the, the independent ones are controlled, you can start taking away opponents monuments So it becomes very cutthroat and very strategic because you can purposely leave uh, independence not taken in your, you know, up in the corner territory and try to defend it. So, you know, so you can sort of stop them from taking yours down in the conflict areas. And this leads
2: actually to one of the things that players first tend to uh, realize even in the first couple rounds of the game of Ankh. And I've seen lots of players do this. I remember experiencing it for the first time when I played Ankh. And that is the crucial control of event pacing. Triggering the events on your terms is of paramount importance. And at the same time, you have the trade-off of the different actions you want to take. Sometimes you get you, you're fortunate or you've set things up well and you get to trigger events on your terms doing the exact actions you want to do. Seldom is that the case, usually you have to make trade-offs. And watching people realize how the incredible bone-simple action selection mechanism dovetails with this crucial early game business of claiming control of monuments is absolutely wonderful. The, the, The jockeying starts right away. You and I have talked a lot about troops on a map games where there's this big, big build up and then this massive confrontation. Uh, we very much like Lords of Hellas. We very much like a lot of these other troops troops on the map game. But typically, you do tend to see those big build ups and then a huge conflagration in Ankh. The skirmishing and the and the scurrying to control the early monuments it starts right away and it's immediately transparent and evident. But being able to manipulate the tempo successfully is not immediately obvious. And so that subtlety and that dynamic is another thing that I adore.
1: Yeah. And the choices to make about what monuments to put on the board, because not only do you want to make sure you have the majority of that particular monument in that territory, these all dovetail back to your Ankh powers because certain powers trigger off of certain monuments. So you sort of want to make sure you have enough pyramids or opponents don't have pyramids or you take pyramids away from people. Everything matters.
2: The pacing is also another area in which I think Ankh really is the sweet spot in this overall genre of game. I've talked a lot about the pacing in terms of how to start fights. Uh, one of the ways in which I feel that Blood Rage is an improvement over Chaos in the Old World, for example, is the way Chaos in the Old World works is there is a fight phase at the end of the round and all regions where there are opponents, they all do the fight and it happens in a very staid way. Uh, the same thing is true of Rising Sun. Everyone does all their actions and then at the end of the round, there's a conflict that happens in a particular place. And while I very much appreciate How Blood Rage or Cthulhu Wars, for example, by Sandy Peterson, allows you to start a combat whenever you want to, and so it's a little bit more dynamic. I think Ankh is a brilliant middle ground. The fight is going to happen when the conflict event is triggered, and it is going to be at a certain time, but how often those events are triggered and when they are triggered is very much up to the player's control. And so you have that same level of scheduling, that same level of scripting that allows for buildup and allows for the slow development of tensions. But at the same time, you still have to worry about the dance of the timing and it is under players control. And so I think it's in many ways, it's the best of both worlds.
1: All right. Now comes to the fun part after 12 of these events, which are, you know, the merging of uh, the controlling the monuments, the, the camel division and the conflict. We have what will make people either hate this game or love this game. It is now merge time, time for merging what this means is that the two players in last place merge into one player in last place.
2: (laughs) It is very controversial and I can completely understand why it rubs some people the wrong way. Many people really hate losing their pieces on the board. Many people hate what they view as quote unquote losing points. And that is purely a matter of taste and how loss averse you are in those particular ways. I don't think there's any right or wrong answer in terms of preference. What I will say though, is that new players tend to, as a rule, completely underestimate the additional power that that merge gives you. One of the first things that new players observe is wait, before I got to take two turns, uh, two actions on my turn. And now I only get to take one action on my turn. Clearly that's weaker Oh, my goodness, no.
1: Yes, this is how I've almost immediately brought people back into the fold in the two games that I played that I was part of the merging person, uh, part of the merging team. The My partner was, in both cases, just sitting back like they're out of the game. It's like, you just do whatever you want. You know, it doesn't matter. We're, we're out. And then, and then I pull them back in by explaining. It's like, look, back in, you know, before we were two teams, we had to always pick two different actions and we could only trigger one event. Now we can choose the same action twice. And sometimes it, it works out that way. Like in a four player game, it might be, uh, unfortunately it might work out that a player will take a turn in between the two, uh, Uh, Last place people, but most of the time, at least in the two times I played, they were right after each other. So you're taking two turns in a row. It's allowing you to trigger events when you want. It's allowing you to take the same action twice in a row, which is extremely powerful. And that has immediately brought them back to the table and and got them back engaged in the game immediately. And love it
2: or hate it. And I, I have some misgivings with respect to the merge. I've seen the merge happen when the merged players are so far behind they didn't really have much of a chance to come back. I've also seen the merge happen when it was a tight race and the merged god just stomped all over everybody else. Now, part of me wants to say, well then, the players in the lead should have built up a better lead or the players in last place shouldn't have allowed the star player to get a better lead in... in reverse order that corresponding to my previous comments. But ultimately, love it or hate it, there are two things to be said about the merge. Number one, it gives the game a definite arc. It absolutely puts the game on its head and suddenly you now know you're in the end game and you feel it. And suddenly the stakes are are raised and you can't play the game exactly the same way that you were playing up to that point. And number two, much of the time, albeit not all of the time, it means that someone isn't going to be completely out of the running at the end of the game. You have to wonder about how long, how much longer the game is going to last, how much time they have to make up the difference, but they're now suddenly super powerful, they have new tools at their disposal, if they're willing to keep an open mind enough to exploit them, and it means therefore that you don't have the spoiler effect that you sometimes encounter in other troops on a map game. Well, I'm in last place, but I have to go attack somebody and whoever I don't attack is going to win or whoever I attack is going to win. Uh, and so if nothing else, for those two reasons, I really admire the effect that the merge has on the game.
1: Yeah, and in the in the last game that we played, I saw that the three the three of us leading the board we're very close and I knew it could have been me that is going to be in third place. So I immediately, uh, either a stopped attacking the person in the last place and B made sure that they got back in the game because your victory point token goes all the way back to where that last player is. And the, the, the further you get them back up the victory point track, the more, the better chance you have at being competitive, and I think we were very competitive in that last game.
2: Oh, it was very, very close. The The last game we played, everyone was in just a couple points of winning, and some of it was camel tempo. Some of it was just what regions got scored when, and I was very much impressed by the merged god who scored something like six or seven points off of a single conflict. It was really, really impressive and really well done. And I, I also just really appreciate how the merge works thematically. I feel that the what they're playing with in terms of Egyptian mythology is really quite clever. It's uh, basically an extension of the Athen Crisis or the Amarna heresy of the 14th century BC, where for a brief time... Egypt went... uh, Walker's yawning now. Anyway, suffice to say there was a very interesting period in in Egyptian uh, dynastic politics where Egypt almost kind of sort of went monotheistic. And uh, well, some people say it actually went henotheistic as opposed to monotheistic. That controversy I find interesting as well. But suffice to say that and the fact that uh, Egyptian gods did combine traditionally you had Amun-Re, you had Ra-Horus, you had a whole bunch of other god combinations. Anyway...
1: Was it wait? Was like was like Voltron? Did they like shoot out of the pyramids and like form super Egyptian? It's not entirely
2: unlike Voltron. (laughs) It's
1: it's Voltron esque, yeah. All right, and that was the merge. Speaking (laughs) of merging, all right, and then there are four more events, and then there's another thing that happens is because we've already i've i've sort of touched on the red points, and it's like the first nineteen points of the game. Are the red points, and then at this point, if someone's still in those first nineteen points, at this point you're just out of the game.
2: I have never seen that happen.
1: I was about to say, I was about to ask you that. It's not happened in any of the games that I've played. So, but it is. It's much like uh, in Gugong when you have to make it to the temple, right? I've never seen anyone not make it to the top of the temple, but it, it leads to uh, a little bit of you know stress or anxiety or sort of you know, tempo change to the game, which, you know, is kind of nice.
2: I wouldn't say stress or anxiety. Those tend not to be very nice. I would say tension. Tension. There you go. Yeah. It's largely illusory tension, but tension. I think also dovetails what I was saying before. The merge, I think, one of the design points of the merge is to make sure that there's never going to be a spoiler. Someone who's not in contention for the win, but can nonetheless influence who is going to win. And I think that the threat or possibility of eliminating players if they're still in the red zone after that penultimate conflict event has the same goal.
1: And then lastly, there'll be two more events, and then the game is done. But like I said, in any of the games that I've played, it's never made it to the end of the game. Someone always hits 31 points, and they are declared the winner. To sum up what I've said before, I really
2: think that Ankh, Gods of Egypt, is the culmination of a lot of very interesting design elements, and that they best manifest in this game of Ankh. The pacing, the carefully calibrated balance of very interesting powers, but no feeling of wild nonsense that comes out of left field. The sense of control, the sense of theme, functional components that are nonetheless bling at their best. I think that Aunt Gods of Egypt is a triumph, and I think it is Eric Lang's
1: best design work. I agree with all those points. It does so many things that other games don't, with the action selection, the merging of two players, the fact that Almost every game will be different with so many different gods and so many different guardians, so many different, you know, power combinations to try out. I am looking forward to, and we haven't even touched on the fact that there are different scenarios that you can play. We played, you know, a game with capitals and there's all sorts of different things that we have yet to try. Priests and, and, uh, temples and all sorts of different things.
2: There's the Pharaoh expansion. We have not tried the Pharaoh expansion because, again, just the sheer amount of variety in the base retail box is astonishing. Most of the clever interactions come from the decisions that people made over the course of the game, not necessarily an extra Kickstarter stuff. We've tried other scenarios, but again, the core basic setup of the game is going to lead to enough variety. I have not felt the need to go into some of the other scenarios because I don't feel they add a whole heck of a lot because the core engine is so strong. The final note that I will add just in terms of summing up, is this is by far the best troops on a map game for two. I've played Ankh several times with two. It plays very, very well at that player count. I think it scales marvelously, although probably with four and five, it starts to get a little bit on the longer end, but I would so happily play at those numbers. Ankh, Gods of Egypt. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. We appreciate your time a great deal and time that you decide to spend with us is something we appreciate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all of our contact information on sowronggames.com slash contact. You can find out all the ways to get in touch with us through any of your favorite social media or any other kind of communications doohickeys on, as Walker would say, the bleep bloops. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning